0: So I suspect uh, all of you have had enough to eat, right? God, isn't isn't Thanksgiving something? It, it, it was. It's like this um, curse almost, in the sense that you eat turkey, and turkey makes you fall asleep, and then you wake up, and you eat more turkey because you're hungry, and it puts you back. I mean, that was what it was like for me Thanksgiving Day. It was like this. Eating Sleeping Marathon. Um, but in between all that, uh, like probably some of you, I get a chance to watch some of my favorite movies. And um, one of the movies I watched this past week that I just uh, r- really enjoy was, um, mainly because it was a true story. It's a great movie. In fact, uh, the movie's called The Great Raid. Um, Some of you have probably seen it. It is uh, the real life story, um, the real life drama of American POWs who were taken captive by the Japanese in the Philippine Islands. Right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese went and took the Philippine Islands. And it was decided by the president that it wasn't of great strategic value at that time and so that they weren't going to offer any relief to the over 10,000 American GIs on that island who were put there to try to be a buffer to the Japanese. And so they were left there. Well, after three years of being forgotten, they were finally rescued and it was a bold rescue the problem is by the time the rescue took place um, only 500 american gis were still alive 500 out of 10,000. Now, you know, many of those died in in what we call the Bataan Death March because when the Japanese came and and took Pearl Harbor, they were overwhelmed by the amount of prisoners that they were going to have to take between the Americans and the Filipinos. It was like 70,000 prisoners, and so they had to thin out the ranks, which meant starving them to death, marching them to death, um, torturing them, making sure that they had a, a, a number of people that they could manage. Well, <clears throat> in this raid, in one night, in just a few hours, American soldiers with Filipino uh, guerrillas went and rescued over 500 American POWs. It's the greatest rescue that has ever been recorded in military history, in the military history of of our country. Um, One of the things that really hit me, though, was a a commentary by a a soldier afterwards who said, we had been left behind, but not forgotten. Now, that hit me uh, because I thought, I don't think I'd find much encouragement in that. If I was one of those POWs for three years who was emaciated, watching all of my friends die, being left behind and not forgotten wouldn't bring me a whole lot of comfort. Um, this morning, I want to look at the book of Zechariah with you. The book of Zechariah is... Uh, The greatest rescue story. Um, It's a story of being left behind, but not left behind. It's a story of God being with his people while rescuing his people. It's one of the greatest rescue stories in, in the Bible because it covers all that God has done throughout human history to rescue his people, to rescue them not from the oppressors of the world but from their own sin and their own destruction. Um, it's funny, last week when Peter was commenting what a wonderful job I had been doing going through the prophets and how he looked forward to how I was going to handle the book of Zechariah, I thought to myself, yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, In fact, I even contemplated, what if I call out sick and I had Peter preach? (laughs) Uh, Because this is no light book. Uh, Zechariah is an interpreter's uh, wonderland. Um, when you study the book, you see all sorts of things like flying scrolls and, and a woman in a basket. You see uh, men walking around in between um, olive trees, and, and you see these images of, of horses and horns. And you look at it and, and you just think, what is going on? In fact, if, if you didn't go up through the 60s and, and um, you want to know what it was like to live in that psychedelic era, um, just read Zechariah because you think you're on drugs when you're reading it, honestly. When you're going through it, it's just, it's amazing and you're and trying to say, what the heck is going on? In fact, you know, when you read the book, you, you ask yourself, why can't they just speak in English? Why can't they just talk the way you're supposed to talk. And yet, one of the things that you need to know when it comes to the language and the images that are used, that's not just a foreign thing to the Bible. Cultures do that. They do it when they want to make a point, when they want to send a message that um, is encouraging or is a warning. In fact, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor uh, one of the uh, admirals in the Japanese Navy said we have awoken a sleeping giant well America wasn't a giant but that was the image because those images evoke emotion and so when you read Zechariah yeah, you get all these images and you got to kind of sort through them but they're there to speak about what God is doing, the hugeness of it. Those symbols are there to show us that what God does in human history is no little thing. It's always big. Um, When we look at this message, or as we look at this book, my purpose is that uh, you understand a little bit of the meaning of the book but that you would understand the message of the book. Because it's not just a book written about what happened with the people of Israel. It's a book that is written about all of humanity. It's a book that speaks to each and every one of us. It speaks to us today. It speaks to us today in a prophetic sense because... Out of all the minor prophets, uh, the book of uh, Zechariah has the most prophecy that you can find when it comes to the future and when it comes to Christ. It's an incredible book. Um, this morning, I just want to begin with you as we look at um, verse 1 and just kind of talk about Zechariah a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of an of a overview. It says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius... And Darius was uh, the emperor of the Persian Empire. Um, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of uh, Berechiah, the son of Ido. Don't you love those names? One day, I'm gonna, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why couldn't you just give him you know, normal names? John, Ringo, Paul, things like that. I mean, Ito? It sounds like ditto, but anyways. So what's the deal with these? Well, Zachariah, back, 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 back. There we go. Zachariah was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was a priest. In fact, um, his son, Barakiah, and, uh, um, excuse me, his father, Barakiah, and uh, his grandfather, Ido were priests. They came back to um, Judah during the time of that first Um, major resettlement of Israel. We had said before that Israel had been separated north and south. North had been invaded by the Assyrians and then the north and south had been invaded by the Babylonians and then came the Persians and later on the Greeks and the Romans. This is that time when the Persians had come. But the Persians were more benevolent. They were willing to let the people of Israel go back to their country. Because we said before, if you're going to invade a country and you want to make sure that it stays invaded, one of the smartest things to do is to take the people you've conquered and to spread them out back in your own country or in other countries that you have conquered so that you just sort of breed them out of existence. Darius had come to that point where He was calling the people back, allowing the Jews to go back to their home place, to go back to their country. It was a call for any who wanted to go back. The interesting thing is not many wanted to go back. 10,000 in the beginning? Think about that. But the reason that was is they were pretty much bred into their culture they didn't identify themselves as Jews as the children of God anymore. And so it's at this time that Zechariah comes. In fact, when Zechariah first comes um, to to Judah, he comes as as a young boy. He comes with his father and with his grandfather. Um, And very early on, he begins to speak God gives him words of prophecy to speak to the nation of Israel. In fact, when he gets there, Haggai, we had already spoken about him, was already preaching. And so he became a colleague of Haggai. Haggai spoke words of warning. Zechariah comes and he speaks words of encouragement. Now, why words of encouragement? Because one of the first things that they were doing is they were looking to rebuild the temple, the house of God but the people were getting weary they were getting weary because of all the hostility by their neighbors who who had already taken over the land they wanted nothing to do with the Jews they didn't want the Jews to come back never mind build a temple for God and so in the midst of all the oppression Zechariah comes to speak words of encouragement words of hope to encourage them to continue the good work that God had called them to Um, one of the neat things about this book is it has, for all the prophetic books, it has the most exact dating um, in its prophecy. We know that um, chapters 1 through 8 were written right about 520 to 518. Now some of you say, no, oh, I don't care about that. Well, that's important because it was written during the time uh, just before the temple was uh, completed and then it was, the book continues right through um, 480 BC after the temple's completed. Now, I, I'm just going to give you this overview because I'm not going to go through this whole book because there's no way I could do this. Just going through this symbolism, um, we'd be here all afternoon. As much as I know you want to do that, um, I don't. Um, so here's a breakdown real quick. The book is made up um, in chapters 1 through 6 of eight visions. And these visions, they're kind of crazy visions, but I'm going to try to bring some light to it as we look at the real message of the book. Um, And in chapters 7 through 8, there are four messages that God gives to the people of Israel. And then in 9 through uh, 14, um, what are called two two burdens or um, oracles. The key people in this book, when you look at it, if you're studying it at home this week, you're going to see Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest. You're going to see Satan, which is really cool, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, But the purpose of this book was to offer encouragement but even more than just encouragement offer instruction on how to be encouraged. Let's go to the next verse. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me declares the Lord Almighty. Next. And I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? In the prophets. Do they live forever? Now, just go back uh, to the second slide. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me. God is angry. Why is God angry? Because they live like adulterous people. God made a covenant with them. When you think about a marriage covenant, when I, when I work with couples and I, and I teach them about the significance of marriage, I always tell them this, marriage is a three-way covenant. It's a covenant that you make with your spouse, but it's also a covenant that you make with God. And and that's important because God doesn't break his covenants. And it's important for us to know that God holds us to those covenants. He doesn't just walk away from it. He loves us so much he enforces those covenants because any covenant that God gives, any promise that God makes, it's for our blessing. You know, Think about marriage. <clears throat> Where would marriage be if God wasn't involved in it? I can think of probably uh, maybe my seventh year of marriage. My wife's not here right now so I can tell the story. Um, I remember, I remember going home, I was leaving the church and um, pulling my driveway, and it was just kind of like a dark winter night. And I thought to myself, I don't want to go in there. Kids r- running around and drooling in diapers, and, and, and my wife, wow, 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 wow. And I thought, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for something totally different, and god it, I deserve better than this. And I remember walking up the stairs onto our porch on Oak Street and just thinking, oh, I do not want to go into this massacre. Um, and then thinking, you know, it's not fair. My wife, she, she got the best end of this. Um, she got me. I, I got the booby prize. I mean, oh, yeah, no. Oh, don't tell me you've never thought that about your spouse. I only have the guts to say it while she's not here. Um, and, and yet, this thought came to my mind. But you didn't make a promise just to your wife. You made a promise to God. And see, the power of that was so important because when I came back to sanity, I realized mm, maybe she got the booby prize. I yeah, yeah. You don't think I'm stupid, do you? like you people aren't going to go run and tell. <laughs> but realizing, you know what? Thank God that God holds us together in our insane moments in marriage. When we think, I deserve better, but then we remember, but I don't outgive God. And then it's, by holding to the covenants that we made to him that we realized later, no man, I am blessed. I have no reasons to complain, God is so good. See, that's the power of God's covenant. Why does God get angry with the people of Israel? Because they just think, God, he doesn't know what he's doing. There's much better stuff out here than what he's offering. And so they, like idolatrous people, they run after it. And what happens? They make a mess out of their lives. Boy, if I, if I had taken off, if I had just said, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to Maui. See, my dreams, I always went to Maui. I don't know why that is. But anyways... It would have been a mess. My wife, my everything would have been a mess. That's just what happens when you break covenants with God. And God is angry because, not because he's mad at them that he's been affronted, he's taking it personal. He's angry because he loves us. He loved the people of Israel. He saw what they were doing, and it made him angry that, that they were settling for so much less to the point they were settling for insanity. And so he says to them, look, return to me. And I'll return to you. He says, don't be like your ancestors. You know, there's a time in a place where we have to look at our lives and as much as we love our parents and our grandparents, we have to look at the the junk and be willing to say it stops here. The cycle ends here. He says, look at your ancestors, where are they now? They're dead, they're gone and their legacy is a tragedy He says, look at the prophets. Where are they? Were they going to be around forever? No, because you killed them. But I come back to you and I say, return to me and I'll return to you. That's powerful stuff. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God loved the people who had just made such a mess that this nation that God gave them became split and it became invaded and run over and destroyed and the people just blown and to the point that no one ever thought Israel could ever be anything again because you can't even find an Israelite in Israel. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Go to the next slide. But the ancestors, they would not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve just as he determines to do. What's going on? The people hear it, they recognize it, and they say, we're guilty. We have, we have made a mess of our lives. We have ended up a disgrace. And so God, <clears throat> just do to us as as we deserve. Do you know anytime you say that to God, anytime that you come before him in repentance, you're not going to get what you deserve. It's interesting. When we think repentance, we always think a negative word. You know, repent. That sounds so humiliating. But it's only humiliating because... We're being told to stop doing the humiliating things we're doing. That's why it goes against our nature. It means admitting I'm making a mess of my life, even though I know it, but don't want to admit it, don't want to say it. God says, look, just repent. Return to me. That's all repentance is, is turning around. What's the purpose of the book of Zechariah? It's calling his people back to himself because God loves his people so much. Let me show you something really neat. Um, over in chapter three. You hear that? We see this picture of Joshua, the high priest, um, and we see... Uh, this great symbolism of what God does in repentance. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. When we talk about Satan being an accuser, this is where it comes from. He's accusing Joshua the priest. Well, how, how can you accuse clergy because clergy are like holy, untouchable, hardly. Clergy are just there to be used by God, but they can be just as sinful, if not, more, than anyone else. Standing at his right side to accuse him, the Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning snit, a stitch, stick, excuse me, st- snatch from the fire." So, what is he saying? He's saying about Joshua what he says about us. We're all burning, burning sticks. All getting what we deserve and yet God puts his hand into the fire and he reaches, grabs us, and pulls us out. Not because we deserve it. In fact, look what we read. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, the angel of the Lord, a, a pre-incarnation of Christ. Now, he was in filthy clothes. That word filthy, it doesn't mean like a little bit dirty, ring around the collar. Literally, it means extrament. I mean, he was, he was just covered. The symbolism of that is this is a priest and look at how sinful he is. The angel said to those who were standing before him, "Take off his filthy clothes." Then he said to Joshua, "See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put you put rich garments on you." So what does he do? He takes him and he dresses him in white. Because that's what God does. When you repent, it doesn't matter how horrible your life has been. It doesn't matter how much of your sin is just covering you. Like that, God takes it away. Some of you think you've gone too far and God won't forgive you. It's not true. You can never go too far. You can never be too filthy. Because God in his glory can take the worst of sinners and raise them up to be the cleanest of saints before his eyes. Even in our imperfection, he makes us perfect because he determines it. Go on to chapter 9. Now, we talk about this all the time at Christmas time, right? We read this verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is what I love about Zechariah, I man. When you read it, it is filled with Jesus all over the place. And what he's pointing to is this is the one who comes as the branch. This is the one who comes and saves us from our salvation. In a day, he removes our sin away from us, Zechariah says. So let me give you, what I think is the theme of this message. What I think is the theme of Zechariah. The theme is this. Nearness to God produces likeness to God. Nearness to God produces likeness to God. What does God want? God wants you to become like him. You are created in his image. Think about Adam and Eve. When, when Adam was created... God showed him all of the land around him. He showed him all of the animals and he said, go and take dominion of the earth. Now, what does that mean? It means you go be my co-region. On the earth, you're my man. You're my woman. Go out and take dominion over it for me because you're just like me. I created you in my image for my purposes, for my glory, which is your satisfaction and being in communion with me. We were commu- created and given the likeness of God. The problem is we went in the opposite direction. problem is that we allowed sin to come into our lives. And our likeness disappeared because our closeness disappeared. I mean, think about it. Each one of us is trying to draw near, trying to become close to something. For some, it's, it's wealth if I can just get closer and closer to more and more money, I'll be safe, I'll be secure. If I can just get closer to another person, if I can just get the intimacy that, that I need, I'll be satisfied. If, if I can just get married, then I'll find someone who, who will fill me and, and make me complete. If, if I can just be accepted by the people around me in this world, life will be good. I, fill in the blank. What is it that you're trying to be close to right now in your lives? I mean, honestly. What's the priority of your life? I love what Peter said last week. That we pursue a compelling vision. The issue is, what's the vision? Because I firmly believe you will pursue a vision that's compelling to you. Doesn't mean it's healthy for you. Doesn't mean that it's going to completely you. It doesn't mean that it's going to offer you anything. But, you, but you're going to pursue it. We all long to be close to something because we believe if we can just get close to it, it'll be enough for us. But here's the deal. Closeness produces likeness. My deal is to to just get as close to money as I can so I feel secure. Yeah, my likeness will be that of a greedy person. I just want to pursue my desires, what makes me feel good. Yeah, that closeness will produce the likeness of perversion, of sickness. If I can just get close to that that one person, if I can just find that person who will love me, that closeness will just produce the likeness of neediness. See, What God says throughout the book of Zechariah, throughout the whole Bible is this. Turn back to me, and I'll be right there. Pursue closeness with me. And have fulfilled in you that emptiness that you're longing to fulfill, which is the completeness of of the likeness for which I created you. That's what the book of Zechariah is really about. It's God saying closeness produces likeness and that's what you were created for. That's why God created the nation of Israel so that he could bless it and the people could be a blessing to the world and draw all people closer to him, they failed. He knew they were going to fail. They needed to fail. They needed to learn that they can't do it amongst themselves. And finally, when the nation got the picture, we're helpless, then God came down and helped. Only God can restore his likeness within us that we've run away from. Who are you trying to be like? When I was a kid, you know, my, my parents had died when I was young. My parents, my, my father. Um, and, and I remember growing up without a male role model. And, and, and when I started to try to pull my life together after kind of t- going in the tank, I started looking at people like John Wayne and thinking, yeah, that's, that's what a real man looks like. I mean, I could do the walk, I could do the talking, no, I'm not gonna do any of that, okay? But I could. I know all of the great John Wayne movie lines, and I mean, they're great stuff. And I thought, you know, if, if you can, yeah, if you can, you can be like him if you can get close to everything that, that he said and all of his movie, you can be a guy like him and be self-assured and be a real man. The problem is, if I took on the likeness, I'd also take on the likeness of a guy who was married three, four times, of a guy who had alcohol problems, a guy who was a good guy, but he was a mess too. Thank God that God touched my heart, opened my mind and I realized Jesus, that's where it's at. The one who God sent to walk upon this earth to dwell with us, to show us what it means to be a real person, a real man, a real woman and to promise us that we can be like him because we are created in the image of him. You see, that's what, that's what matters. You try to be close to something, you'll become like it. Don't kid yourself. So you've got to ask yourself the question, what do I really want to be like? then that's what you need to move close to. When you look through the book of Zechariah, <laughs> there are wonderful things that we're told, and I'm going to give you just in a quick soundbite. Number one, can you put those up there? Zechariah is saying, if you want to be like God, be smart. Just think for a second, Is what you're pursuing, the things you're looking to get close to, are you really gonna like what they look like? If not, be smart. Pursue the only one who can fill you and bless you. And that's God. That's just smart. Repent. Because if you repent, if you say, God, I'm a mess and I know it and I don't want to be this way and would you help me? Done deal. Already done. That's how quickly God responds to your repentance. Number two, be still. Be still and let God do his work. Don't run around anxious, fearful. Just be still, the prophet Zacharias says. And know that God is God and that what he's doing, you can't do, you can't mimic. You can't save yourself, only he can. Number three. Be sure. Live in in the sureness that God is with you. That nothing can separate you from Him. I love what Paul says in Romans 8: Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Height nor depth, nothing. I love the picture of Satan accusing Joshua. And God says, beat it. Be sure, be sure of knowing that you are forgiven once and for all that God has taken the filth off of you and you stand white before him even in the midst of your struggles. Number four, be satisfied. All through the book, God says to his people, look, I'm gonna take care of your enemies. I'm gonna restore your lands. I'm gonna allow your vineyards to reap incredible fruitfulness. All you have to do is be satisfied. Don't look for what you want. Look for what you need, look for what God wants for you and you'll find satisfaction in that. You will not find satisfaction in what you want, you won't. You'll only find it in what you need and what God wants for you. Number five, be strong. Zacharias says, "Be strong. have strong hands, what he's saying is, don't be afraid. Live each day knowing I know that God is with me. And and we haven't been forgotten. He's here. Yep, here is a messy place, but that's all right. God will walk you through the mess. Look at the future and And be strong. Don't buy into all the paranoia of this world. Don't buy into all the fear. You know, I have people talk to me all the time about the end and about, you know, when everything falls apart and and what they're going to do. And and I say to them, what does the end look like? Who are you running from? Well, we're running from the government because one day the government's you know they're going to come and get you and you're going to run from the government you're going to hide in the mountains with guns you're going to run from the same government that took iraq in a couple of days but but you you're going to fend them off that's ridiculous you're going to run from the zombie apocalypse that's stupid You're gonna run from God, good luck. You don't have to run from anything. Perfect love that God has for us, casts out all fear. Yeah, but shouldn't you be ready, ready for what? Think about Jesus. He didn't carry any guns. He wasn't surplusing any ammo. He didn't have cartons and boxes of food to get to. He didn't have a dash bag where he would run if things got tight with all sorts of passports. He walked strong because he trusted his Heavenly Father. That's what we're supposed to do. Be strong. Don't be weak. When I hear people talk of all this fear, all I hear is a weakness. What's the worst that's gonna happen? You're gonna die. Yeah, a little memo if you haven't got it. You're gonna die anyways. Doesn't really matter. What matters is, did I walk with God? Was I near to him? Because if I'm near to him, dying is not an issue. If I'm close and I bear his likeness, then all I want more and more is to be with him. Not to be with this world. Be strong. And last, be steadfast. Jesus is coming or you're going, but either way, it's all good. So just be steadfast. Go out and preach the gospel like you were told to do. You read Zechariah, we see the advent of Christ, him coming. We see him marching into Jerusalem on a donkey to be crucified. And yet in chapter 14 of Zechariah, you see Jesus coming back to take dominion over all things. It's a done deal. Be satisfied. I want to close with this. These are words that were spoken by Abraham Lincoln in a speech that he gave back in 1863. Lincoln said this, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserves us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imaged in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with broken, with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God that made us. It's funny, all these words of the past, don't they just speak to us today? As I read that, I thought, that's us. As I read Zechariah, that's us. And so what do we do? We turn back. And we realize that the only thing that can fill us is the one who created us. We pursue closeness with God because we knew that closeness will produce likeness. And in his likeness, he'll be glorified and will be edified and will make a difference in this world. Let's join our hearts in prayer.